become magic. Yeah. And I... now, now you're going on four years of recording this nonsense. Welcome back to There Will Be Movies. This is episode 31, and we are covering 2012's very own Zero Dark Thirty. I am your host, Benjamin Phillips, and I am joined, as always, for this by Matthew Waters. How are you this fine evening? I'm okay. You made me watch another war movie. Um, I did. It worked out pretty well last time with this exact combo of Catherine Bigelow <laughs> and, and, and Mark Boll. Uh... I am less pleased with the results this time. Okay, interesting. Um, yeah, we probably shouldn't get into it in too broad of terms, but I much prefer the Hurt Locker to this. And I know that's the opposite of the public opinion, where the Hurt Locker is considered one of the softest winners of an Oscar ever, and this is, like, massively acclaimed, and... Yeah, I don't know, but I, I, I not, think, not for me. <laughs> I think public perception's kind of flipped in the last decade or so. Obviously, this doesn't win, I think... The, the best picture for a variety of reasons, including it being very fresh. It, like, it's within two years of Osama Bin Laden's actual death, this movie mm. comes out, which is kind of insane mm. in reality. I guess um, Mark Boll had to act on that intel that he gathered through <laughs> controversial means. Like, I read before this that, like, Somebody in the CIA basically suggested that they had gained access illegally to private to secret information, and then it turned out that some dipshit in the army or the CIA had like blabbed at some sort of award ceremony, and Mark Ball was one of the people in attendance, and just I guess he just ran with it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's this is I think Locker and Zero Dark Thirty are a really fascinating dichotomy of kind of what they can do and I very much appreciate Jessica Chastain's presence in this movie over the Hurt Locker which is kind of very hyper masculine mm. but uh, there is like if we are looking at Catherine Bigelow's output for the 2010s it's Zero Dark Thirty and it's Detroit and there is no way we are covering Detroit because <laughs> that movie is like a like Mark Ball wrote that one as well, and did he really? Yeah, <laughs> yeah like they they basically like hooked up off the Hurt Locker and have been together since then. Yeah. Uh, he does Triple Frontier as well. I w- uh, I would love to support John Boyega, but yeah, Detroit is of no interest to me. Detroit is one of those things where Will Poulter is kind of the the almost the protagonist of the movie, and since he is like the lead racist cop, it's just like <laughs> this is a terrible decision the, the three made. billboards uh, effect <laughs> yes exactly but like this i think is a far more interesting conversation whether or not i think it's better than the hurt locker i not decided at the moment but i do think there is a very interesting conversation here and mm. you can see it in some of the praise for this movie uh, i'm going to quote david edelstein's review for vulture where he calls it borderline fascistic uh, but as a piece of cinema it's phenomenally gripping and an unholy masterwork and I, I think that is kind of the thing where it's like, you're never sure what the politics of this movie actually are. Yeah, I definitely started off very uncomfortable and, like, I had faith, given how the Hurt Locker is handled, that it wouldn't be, like, a big piece of US military propaganda. But that first half hour had me a bit like, but is it, though? <laughs> and, like, I didn't get, I didn't dig 
fully into it, but I did read a little bit of the stuff about how people feel about the torture scenes in particular, and there are both extremes happening there in terms of how people read it. So this may just be one of those things where, like, you know, the way it washed over me initially maybe leaves me with a bad taste in my mouth, but maybe in time that will mellow, and it's probably why I shouldn't watch movies for the very first time when we do this podcast. (laughs) But, you know... I finished it like three hours ago, so you're getting my very raw, very fresh feelings on it. And and it's interesting because you watched only mm. the last half hour about thirty minutes ago, and the last uh, half hour, yeah, is is a, almost like a piece of a different movie. And so I ways. wish the whole movie was that. <laughs> Quite frankly, <laughs> it's like I think the last thirty minutes are the thing that kind of sticks everyone's score. Like that is the masterpiece kind of part of the movie and i i do really love the first two hours of it but the last 30 minutes you kind of come away and go like that's it's kind of incredible how they did do. you make this yeah um <laughs> did you just but... did you just kill people like what what happened <laughs> uh, uh but before we get into the movie in detail we are discussing 2012 this is our only 2012 movie before we mm. skip over to 2013 so we have a lot of groundwork to cover in terms of context Yes. So what were movies that were people going to see this year, Matt? Uh, well, Benjamin, uh, in the year of our Lord 2012, the money is... I, I've not heard of any of these movies. Um, the Avengers with <laughs> $1.5 billion. Uh, Sky... uh, ben and Matt's Marvelous Journey is, is streaming on <laughs> various podcast services. Yes. Uh, Skyfall, $1.1 billion. Uh, Secret Agent Man is also streaming on various podcast services. The Dark Knight Rises, one billion. Uh, the Taped Crusaders is also streaming on. Good various... job. Good job. Uh, the Hobbit: An Unexpected Journey, one billion. I nothing for that one. No, not even not even Pantheon Plus bothered with that. Ice Age: Continental Drift. I'd love to be making an announcement right now. But no. <laughs> uh, yeah, Twilight, Breaking Dawn Part 2, Amazing Spider-Man. Big Mad- Spiders, streaming on Fox <laughs> Podcast Services. Madagascar 3, The Hunger Games, Men in Black 3. Uh, if you just keep on scrolling down the list, uh, at 55 is Zero Dark Thirty. Not managing to best such things as Last Vegas... The Wind Rises, Best Exotic Marigold Hotel, Step Up Revolution, and Paranormal Activity 4. However, it did tragically defeat Ghost Rider Spirit of Vengeance. Nicky Cage is it will be a Spirit of Vengeance for that slight against him. I feel these lists are going to be much like this every time out now. And so Volume 1 was kind of refreshing in that, I mean, it started to get this way towards the end, but that top 10... You could pretty much just swap in and out similar movies in the same franchises or of the same genre year on year on year from here. And we are getting billion dollar movies at this point, which I don't think there had been. I mean, maybe, I mean, there's, Avatar. The, there's The and, Dark Knight and there's yeah. Lord of the Rings are like the two yeah. in the in the first decade of our, of but, our podcast. But four movies with a billion dollars, that had to have been a first. The UK... Loved Zero Dark Thirty. Five million dollars of its total one hundred and thirty-two. It opened at a paltry fifth in the UK, made the equivalent of one point six million dollars. Only the second highest new movie that weekend behind Lincoln, uh, but ahead of Movie Forty Three. Anyone remember Movie Forty Three? Chris Pratt's in it. <laughs> yeah. 
Oh, he's just making money this time. Uh, yeah, Les Mis was at number one. Brits like their French propaganda more than they like their American propaganda. Yes. Uh, Les Mis, Django Unchained, Lincoln, Life of Pi, Zero Dark Thirty, The Impossible, Movie 43, Monsters, Inc., a 3D re-release. Uh, I love when a movie that's like super fucking old still makes <laughs> it into the top ten, you know? Uh, the Hobbit, The Last Stand, blah, 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 blah. Yeah, yeah it's, it's very much that Oscar window. Like, most of these movies in this top ten are are nominated for Best Picture. Yeah. So it's just kind of like the Brits are going to see all the Oscar movies in January of 2013. Mm-hmm. That's what we do. Uh, but speaking of Oscars... Let's cover what actually was nominated this year. So Zero Dark Thirty does get a nomination. It doesn't win uh, in comparison to The Hurt Locker. And also Catherine Bigelow does not get a Best Director nomination, which is kind of a snub considering uh, Ben Zeitlin of Beasts of the Southern Wild fame, which is also nominated for Best Picture, just sneaks in there. Like It's it's a very interesting Best Director lineup with Ang Lee, Michael Haneke, Ben Zeitlin, Steven Spielberg, and David O. Russell, which is like two foreign directors and then a first-time director, and then you've got Spielberg and David O. Russell kind of coming back to... Well, I mean, like, like David O. Russell's kind of been successful with The Fighter and stuff like that, but it definitely feels like he kind of... I love how much you hate The Fighter. <laughs> like, you just won't acknowledge it. <laughs> I, I, I mean, like, just, just David O. Russell kind of disappeared for a few years in the middle there. We'll but, talk um, about a boxing movie you think is acceptable soon. <laughs> Hopefully, I don't know. <laughs> I've not seen it, so we'll find yeah. out. Uh, but yeah, Silver Lines, Playbook, Lincoln, Life of Pi, Les Mis, Django Unchained, Beasts of Some World, and more, and Argo, Argo, Fuck Yourself, wins Best Picture. <laughs> again, again, bizarre Ben Affleck doesn't get a director nomination for that, but yep. these are the movies that the Academy thought were good. But let's see what actual critics... <laughs> actual uh, critics. Fuck actual you, critics. everyone in the Academy. <laughs> I mean, the movie, no, I mean... That won that, the movie that won that year is Argo, which is a movie about posing as a film team mm. to go rescue prisoners from a foreign country. It's very much in that kind of wheelhouse of things that the Academy likes, where it's like... Movies about this... movies, yes. Movies about movies. <laughs> um, but yeah, the, the most acclaimed movie of 2012 is Holy Motors, the mm-hmm. Leas Carrax movie, which is uh, wonderful. Uh, and more is the second most, Michael Haneke. Act of Killing, The Master, which really should have been nominated for Best Picture. Uh, Zero Dark Thirties in there in that top, kind of top ten. Moonrise Kingdom, Francis Ha, Spring Breakers. What are your feelings for Spring Breakers? Spring Break forever. <laughs> I I really don't know. I don't think I'm equipped to to critically discuss Spring Breakers. I, I, it's a wonderful little movie that you either love or you hate. And I, I completely support people's opinions to hate it, but it's a movie that I'm like, yeah, no, I, I, think, I really think I this. think James Franco needs better people in his life. No, like, because the last time that I enjoyed James Franco in a movie, apart from Disaster Artist, j- before he started, like, directing just a whole shitload of William Faulkner movies. Like, <laughs> you look at fucking James Franco's career, and it's like, all he does now is direct movies based on <laughs> Faulkner. It's utterly mm. bizarre, that's what he does. This is true. But then also, this is the end. The roast of James Franco. What a wonderful time to be alive. When he hosts the Oscars. A a wonderful piece of performance art. (laughs) That sadly completely fucked one of our leading ladies. Generated enormous sympathy for her and propelled her on an upward trajectory. That did culminate in her winning an Oscar in 2012, yes. Exactly. (laughs) So this is our James Franco podcast. (laughs) We are doing all the films of James Franco that he directed. Listen to uh, Rise of the Planet of the Apes, the review by Pantheon Plus several weeks ago. Why doesn't Arise come after a dawn? I, I, I don't know. 
It, I mean, that, that that is the worst naming convention, and then Dawn leads to war, apparently. Yes. Yeah, speaking of war, Slayer so brought it back. <laughs> yes, this is... Uh, I mean, because this is the thing. It, it's not really about war. It's more of a spy movie. Spy movies are generally fun, <laughs> though. And spying happens. I mean, there is spying. There's that, that in bit the in the most second... Literal there's that bit in the second act where they're following the guy around in the... They, just, they clone a phone and then just look for people who are like acting a bit suspicious on their phone and take a picture. And <sighs> Benjamin, this, this movie is at least an hour too long. I mean, so yeah, so I think we do have to touch on the fact that this movie was going to be about something completely different. It was going to be basically about Battle of Tora Bora in oh. December 2001 and the t- decade-long fruitless search for Osama bin Laden that kind of follows all of this. And then in the middle of them writing this movie and gearing up for production, the news comes in that Osama bin Laden has died and they literally rip up the script and start from scratch. Yeah. And like you you find things like Mark Wolf hears whispers of this CIA agent who was present at the at the killing of Osama bin Laden, who was apparently like her entire career with the CIA was based around like her trying to find this person mm. and they kind of take that to be the kernel of the movie. And that's who Jessica Chastain plays, a kind of fictionalized version of the CIA intelligence analyst who spends two thousand three to two thousand eleven basically just on this one woman hunt. For Osama bin Laden. Yes. And I would love it if there were characters in this movie for her <laughs> to, like, in any way interact with. Like, I just feel like it's star studded. Like, it's a constant shit. They're in this, they're in this. What's John Barrowman doing, like, <laughs> 10 minutes from the end for some reason? It's, oh, it's look, a... it's the cast of Marvel. <laughs> It's uh, the most bizarre, like, parade of TV-level actors who are Hey, all... you apologise to Hollywood's own Joel Edgerton. <laughs> they will find him a vehicle, Ben. I, I just mean, it is that thing where you watch it and you go, like, almost every single person in this movie is either a well-known character actor or someone whose starring role has come from television. Yes. And it means you get a lot of, like, oh my god, it's that person. But it's not like it cost very much to get any of these people and it's not like they had to be around for very long it's and, also incredibly early on in jessica chastain's career this is yeah. like her second year of starring in movies she's got tree of life the year beforehand she's like she's done tv for a while i remember seeing her in like an episode of veronica mars back in 2004 oh, wow. but it's this like 2000 like 11 she's got tree of life she's got the help uh, she's a voice in Madagascar 3. In 2012, she's got Lawless, Zero Duck 30. And and it kind of like, it's just this crazy explosion for her where she just suddenly becomes Hollywood leading lady. She gets an Oscar nomination for this. And and eventually her career culminates in her starring role in Dark Phoenix. Oh, that's such an embarrassing performance for her. I think she's, she's wonderful in this. I think she, yeah. I probably would have picked her for my lead actress that year over Jennifer Lawrence. I just, again, I really wish I could tell you anything about who Maya is other than, and I guess that's the point. She is defined by her obsession of finding and, Bin Laden. But and, and to skip ahead a little bit, I think it's why the final scene is so she's alone in a plane yeah like, she's alone but it's so kind of gutting is that she's spent her life on this and she thinks it's going to mean something when she yeah. stands over the body of osama bin laden and she feels nothing like there is no sense of like 
success or anything in this it's like she has taken on one piece of this enormous pie of like world politics Uh and ultimately it's this kind of like deflating feeling of like well what does my life mean now like i've spent 10 years of my life chasing this and yeah again if the whole movie is like last 45 minutes to an hour i super fucking love this movie but i cannot overlook how fucking bored i was for two hours before that as characters are just so completely dispensable and interchangeable they just you know we bond with dan then dan fucks off joe fucks off here's a new you know the lady dies jessica i think she is which is confusing because jessica chastain is the lead i just, it's just very hard to connect with anyone other than maya because they are all just tourists on a movie that is so much about the laborious process of trying to find someone unfindable and it does feed that like very emotional final scene but it could have fed it in a shorter runtime. <laughs> <laughs> this, this is your catchphrase, isn't it? I, I, I think. Um, no, I, this, I this in particular, like I, I, so I am often nitpicking at like five to ten minutes. This, this is a solid hour I could lose from this movie. See, that's. I remember watching this in cinema because I went because this was like one of those years where this was. I missed a lot of the 2012 Oscar movies, but this is one of the ones that I made it certain I was going to go see it in cinema. I think it ended up being my favourite film of 2012. I think Avengers would now be like my number one film of 2012 of in hindsight. But it's just, I just remember being sat in the cinema and so much of this movie just being so fucking tense. And I do think a little bit that's lost when I know that the suicide bomber is going to come kill Jessica. And you don't have this kind of agonizing five minutes of just kind of like watching the car come closer towards them. And they're all so happy. Mm. And and I think think some of that was lost in terms of just the tension and the surprise of some of the stuff that goes on. I just, I'm sort of left with what is achieved in the first hour and a bit of the movie. And again, Maybe that's the point. Nothing is achieved, and they're in—they're deliberately showing you failure after failure after dead end after lead that doesn't pan out, etc. But being meta about that is—I don't accept <laughs> personally. Yeah. Well, but. let's let's touch on how the movie starts. The movie does open with a series of recordings of 911 calls people mm. from 9-11 which is intense very traumatic very traumatic <laughs> yes. uh and it does kind of set the tone i think it does set the tone very well for like what the mindset was for a lot of the decisions in the early portion of this movie because mm. even though it cuts ahead two years to 2003 where they're in pakistan and they're on a black site where they're doing interrogations of various people that are suspected to be tied to the 11 tax and it's supposed to be this kind of like raw nerve and i do think over the course of these torture scenes you're supposed to kind of go like this is kind of really fucked up the way that we are treating these people i would absolutely take the kinder off of that um <laughs> a massive disclaimer fuck osama bin laden and this entire everything that happened however there is a very for me personally crystal fucking clear line that they massively cross in this fictional setting that is you know allegedly based on legitimate accounts some of it probably dramatized some of it possibly like you know friend of a friend told me this in the army that they did this but if we take the fiction to be you know what we are discussing just dehumanizing people um no matter what they've done and i i will not be okay with 
you know, like putting a dog collar on him and pantsing him in front of a woman and laughing at him for shitting himself because they fucking dehydrated him and kept him awake and all of this sort of stuff. And I'm not saying I'm okay with them like tying him up and beating him, but there is a difference between that and utter humiliation and just like, you know, I own you and, and that kind of stuff. And the. That's... Yeah, you, you lie to me, I hurt you. Yeah. The, the kind of the underlying thing. And there's all this, like, enhanced interrogation is how they describe it in this almost like we need to call it something else to make us not feel terrible about what we're doing. Oh, yeah, they do and, call it that, don't they? <laughs> and the idea that, like, so much of the information that is gleaned from these stuff, it, like, because obviously by the time you dehumanize something, they're going to say whatever they you want to hear to yeah. make you stop doing this thing. Yeah. And, um... and like, the government... Well, the US government did say after this movie came out or during the promotion of this movie that, like, they are grossly overstating the amount of information that was gleaned from enhanced interrogation. Yeah, I I read it as sort of, like, um, condemning the idea that how often this works, essentially. Mm. Or, Or the quality of the information you get from this kind of method or the implication that it... Because, I mean, obviously we're only seeing specific scenes, but... The scene of what we see, it works a hundred percent of the time, essentially, yeah. and it's like. But even, but even then, I'd argue that like the point that the movie kind of makes is the only reason they get any usable information out of him is, yes, they do have to kind of lie to him and say, oh, you had, like insomnia related kind of like you you just forgot the information you told us, but we managed to stop the bombing in London. Yeah. And then they just kind of kind to him and give him food and water, and yeah, he, yeah. he kind of spills everything. And it's like that kind of spy work. But then also you do have to kind of like them being kind to him gets information. But there's also the uncomfortable part of the idea that to get him to a point where he would believe that he's already given them information, they had to torture him. Yeah, and like it's one of those things where I'm unclear how our characters feel about this because they they make a big thing of like Dan wants. Maya to cover her face and offers to take her somewhere else and take a big break from it and she's like no no no, we should go back in and like she wants to show her face and you know I I took my inference was that like they maybe are harder on women than they are on men potentially like because she asks like is he ever getting out and he goes no and then she leaves the the mask off her face but Maybe it's just sort of supposed to be a, like you're new at this kind of thing. I don't know, but yeah, I you know she at times I think looks very visibly uncomfortable. She never intervenes in any way. None of them express any form of regret about what they're doing because like even at the end in the fucking like you know boners at the ready, let's go kill Bin Laden scene. You do see the soldiers who are kind of like fucked up at seeing the women and the children and then. And that sort of stuff. But here it's just kind of like treated so matter of fact. And it's like, you know, I talked about this a little bit with Mike with the Joker. And like, you know, does a movie need to condemn something for its audience to know it's wrong? And like, you know, no. But if I'm asked to sort of go on a journey with a set of characters, I would like to think that I I, I would like to like them. And Mm. early on, well, for a lot of the movie, I could not get a beat on Maya. Is she supposed to be like... Is she supposed to kind of, like, have a stick up her ass? Is she supposed to be, like, young and brilliant? Is she dogged and determined? Is she the only nice one in a group of, like, complete arseholes? And I I don't think she's any of those things. And then Dan, I couldn't really get a read on either. I'm like, I mean, are you, like, 
the guy that's a little bit too extreme and then she's like, your methods don't work, I'll be nicer. And none of that. But then, but then really... he kind of has to, like, the underwritten thing, and uh, it's kind of emblematic it, of... It gets to him and he has yeah. to, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he has to leave, and, like, the way the movie kind of... Perf- like conveys it is my monkeys they were killed yeah like like he's had enough of like watching stuff go away and disappear Mm. i've seen too many guys naked is how he phrases it yeah it's it's all (laughs) it's all very like that it's similar to the hurt locker where i think there is a level of they are holding things at arm's length yeah i i am glad that like that scene occurs for him that he breaks before she does in a lot of ways when the story very easily could have been like, you're not cut out for this sweetheart or whatever. But no, he's like, you know, I'm kind of fucked up right now and I would like to leave here and do something normal for a while. <laughs> and I appreciate that aspect of it and that this becomes such a traumatic thing for everyone involved. But like, it's that thing of like, Dan Harmon has talked about main characters and, and latching on to people and how an audience doesn't like to be left drifting looking for somebody to attach to. And by instinct, we attach to the first person we see until someone better comes along. And I'm kind of like, for me, I spent about 20 minutes drifting thinking, who am I supposed to be? Who is my precious baby here? You know, <laughs> almost like, and I'm not saying Maya is unlikable, but yeah, I just, I spent 20 minutes just in my feelings about America and, and like torture and all of that. And this may just be a giant political issue thing rather than a fault of the movie but yeah i just i spent a long time like i don't know if i like anyone yet <laughs> i like oh so the character of Maya is based on alfredo francis bikowski apparently like mm-hmm. this has been not, not confirmed by anyone involved in the movie but some people have stated that she is the person who uh, was very integral to finding osama bin laden mm-hmm. Uh, she has the unfortunate name of the un- unidentified queen of torture, which would imply that she was kind of very pro this kind of thing. And a the participant, movie... potentially. <laughs> yeah, and the movie does kind of scale that back. Like, <laughs> for a lot of the conversation that the movie gets, there aren't a lot of scenes of torture. It really is only But this... it's very in-depth, I would say. Yes, like, this is the first movie where I kind of came around and went like, oh, that's why waterboarding sucks. It's not like, <laughs> it's not just having water thrown all over you, it's having water thrown in you through a cloth or something. Yeah, it's simulated drowning. Like, you yeah. can't get the air. Yeah, and seeing this this very naked man, like, in his own filth, kept awake day and night, like, hung from the roof and, like, shoved into that tiny box and, like, you know, him saying, like, giving every single day of the week as when the attack is going to happen, like, defiant to the end almost. Like, I I can't help but sympathise with a fucking terrorist, you know? And it's yeah. like, what and, are we doing and, like, here? Just, just the idea that, like, just the way he eats the food and mm. the way that he, like, has that Gatorade or just whatever that liquid is, mm. it's... Just cannot get it in him fast enough. Yeah, uh, but they do get a name from him, which turns out to be, or potentially is, one of Osama bin Laden's uh, trusted couriers, which is what sets Maya off on this kind of chase to go and kind of, she cross-references basically every other piece of interrogation footage that she can find to find out more about who this Abu Ahmed might be. Mm-hmm. I'll tell uh, you what, I'll tell you what, the first time I liked Dan, 
he does a Wu-Tang Clan reference. And I was like, okay, maybe you're okay. Let's, so let's <laughs> let's touch on this kind of like insane cavalcade of people who are working for the CIA in Pakistan. Because <laughs> we've met Jessica Chastain as Maya, we've met Jason Clark as Dan. Uh, you have somehow not managed to see any Jason Clark movies up until this point. Nope, I've seen... I. I... I read through his credits. I have seen every episode of Farscape. I do not remember him being in Farscape. I am sure he's in one episode as a no-name character. Uh, I have somehow avoided every single thing he's in until now. I didn't see that Matt Reeves planet yet. Did he do both War and... He did both War and okay. Dawn. I gather those are good. Um, yes, they are. I, I gather people were excited when he got Batman. But yeah, I just I have not seen him in anything. He's he's good. He's he's a charismatic man. But yeah, just somehow uh, I I I am the blip in his algorithm. <laughs> uh, we got Jennifer Ale as Jessica, most famous for playing Lizzie Bennet in the nineteen ninety five BBC Pride and Prejudice adaptation. I do like how the movie kind of goes where initially you think it's going to be this kind of catty relationship between yes. Jessica and Myra. It's like, <laughs> oh, the two women in the CIA outpost in Pakistan, like they're not going to be able to get along. And then by the end of it, they're like best friends. And Tell you what for, broke for... my tiny heart when uh, Maya's <laughs> screensaver was a selfie with <laughs> with Jessica back in Washington. I was like, Mm-hmm. That sucks. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm. Uh, she's really good in this. Yeah. I do really enjoy her. Your your favorite daddy, Carl Chandler. Oh, Carl Chandler, the man that would almost beat his wife, but then be nice to her. Like you know, just that through gritted teeth acting he does. He's in work forever. Again, is Joseph a dick of a boss that they are gonna have to like overcome? Is he actually just sort of tough love but nice? Don't know, but it's. I think the most interesting thing about this movie is because obviously, uh, so Carl Chandler is based on a, presumably a real station chief out in Islamabad for the CIA. Mm-hmm. Uh, at a certain point in this movie, he gets sent home because information comes out in his involvement in torture and basically just mass protests outside the CIA outpost. Yeah, they know his uh, name, could potentially find his face. It is not safe for him to be there anymore, and Maya apologizes to him basically, and then and. Yeah, it's this kind of thing where the movie has to place dramatic stakes that work in a movie on top of real things that happened. And I don't know if they're, like, doing this because this actually did happen, Hmm. or if this is just their decision for, like, how to have this character leave the movie or show just how dangerous it can be out there for Americans in, in Pakistan at this period of time. Yeah. But yeah, so the last two, we have Harold Perrineau, most famous of Lost and The Matrix, and Romeo and Juliet, Jack, who is maybe Maya's boyfriend or fuck buddy. <laughs> like, it's, who knows? Like, this bizarre thing where like they have conversations, but Maya and Jessica do about how Jack's like they're sleeping together potentially, but they have no romantic or sexual chemistry in actual scenes with each other. Mm. Like, like almost like those scenes were cut. And then finally bringing out this like ragtag group of CIA analysts. We have Succession's very own Jeremy Strong in this bizarre like two-scene cameo in this movie. Yeah, who... he is not credited. <laughs> <laughs> and now he is possibly my favourite leading man on television. I think it just goes to show like, just how many of these names they are pulling from TV. Because hmm. uh, this movie is made for $40 million. Yeah. It's like... You don't need a million dollars to be in our movie. Come here. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, have you got a TV off season? Just come to India and shoot like half a scene or something. I'll give you like forty grand, a hundred grand. I don't know. 
<laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's so weird. But yeah, so like the, the kind of the first act of this movie is this kind of, I wouldn't call it a goose chase, but it's just very much, Maya is very much focused on one name and one name only. Yeah, it's kind of wild it does pan out for her because it is... I mean, some of the people point out at times, this is quite a hunch you are, like, putting everything on. But, I mean, she is vindicated, so go her. Yeah, uh, is, is there much you want to discuss in this kind of section? Because it is kind of very much this. And the movie, like, Dan leaves, and mm. you kind of jump ahead a lot, and it feels like the next significant thing that happens is the Camp Chapman attack. Yeah, there's the bombing at the Marriott, there's... I mean, that's kind of like, this entire thing is like, the movie kind of skips ahead, and it feels like this is the part where they are, like, jumping ahead to different sections, where Farage is the person who they've been trying to, like, contact information between, because that is who Osama Bin Laden has been using Abu Ahmed to carry it between. And when they finally catch up with Farage... Farage says, I don't know who this person is. Maybe you're thinking of someone different. And it kind of feels like that is the end of that trail. Mm -hmm. And then it's a double backed up by like the fact that another person says, oh no, that person died in yeah. 2001. Like they've been dead the entire time they've been looking for them. Yeah. And we kind of drop that in favor of Jessica's meeting with someone. <laughs> uh, so yeah, so she meets with what is supported to be a doctor who works within the inner circle of Al-Qaeda, right. who... Because oh, at this point, they never turn, do they? But the Jordanians have been trying to ply him, or is that...? Yeah, so they're so basically, they are promising to give this doctor $25 million to turn for them, and so they need to have a meeting. He will not leave controlled airspace or like go to anywhere where it's not safe, yep. so they agree on this kind of middle ground of Camp Chapman. Yes, and they tease this out for... Forever. <laughs> and it's very clear this isn't going to go well. Yeah, I mean, this is, again, one of those things where this movie is trying to thread the needle of the Camp Chapman chat attack is a very real thing. Ten people died, including the attacker. There were six people injured. And it, it's, like, a very brutal and, like, one of the, like, biggest terrorist attacks on, like, US military-controlled soil, I believe. In the cinema, this was, like, the most tense I've yeah. been, or like I, I, I still think about how tense I was during the scene where I saw it in the cinema. You have the scene earlier on where Jessica and Maya are in a, a suicide bombing, or very near to a suicide bombing. That kind of comes out of nowhere in the between yeah. their friendship, and this is a very different kind of tension. Where that first scene of the bombing, you don't think something bad is going to happen, whereas this one, you're sat there the entire time going like something bad's going to happen, something bad's going to happen. Right down to the fact that like, a fucking black cat runs in front of the car. <laughs> yeah. And you've got like the whole thing where Jessica is texting Maya about how excited she is that they're going to be there, and it's all like cliche after cliche of like this yeah. is going to go badly. Yeah, and then it does. <laughs> it's just sort of like okay, I mean, it makes sense. I just I wish I cared about Jessica more before this happened because I was sort of like this is quite a long time to spend with her when she has had very few scenes up until now or very little of substance and like i almost care about her more post-death than i do before yeah the movie is kind of very much sketching this relationship where it's like the first scene they're kind of catting with each other they have a scene where they kind of make, make up and make friends where maya like acquiesces to like her comments uh -huh. and it's like oh like we're on equal footing and then it's like they have the scene the Marriott together, and then Jessica's dead. Yes. I think that's just, like, my biggest hurdle is that it kind of 
the whole thing is such a moving target in terms of what the focus is, who the next sort of antagonist we're focusing on is going to be, we're jumping countries, we're just churning through cast members, and I I almost wish they had made this way more overly Hollywood dramatic than it is, just so I could like attach to some people a bit more. Um, and that that's where I come out in favour of The Hurt Locker is, tiny cast, care about every one of them. And this is kind of like a giant cast, care about almost none of them. And I think, I, I, I do understand that like meta thing of like, this is how it was for her, is all these people are just flitting in and out of her life and it is a chaotic thing of constant failure and it all culminates in the big scene. However, I would like to be entertained along the way of you making your big meta point. Is is just my personal thing, um, and I'll I'll try and shut up about it now. But no, no, yeah. no. I, I, I do think I do think it's interesting to kind of like dissect this because this is such a procedural movie, and I think it's so interesting that you have this kind of level-headed approach to filmmaking. And it's very obvious that Mark Bowl is very fascinated in the the kind of factual ins and out, and I do think yeah. he has a a flair to make them more dramatic but when he's working whole cloth from an original story like the hurt locker is where it's just kind of like i spoke to a lot of soldiers Hmm. and i got stories i managed to piece this thing together that is not factual in any way compared to this where the movie has to cover eight years if you're if you are focusing on maya Hmm. you kind of have to chart the entire wild goose chase of this and Again, I do think it is. I think it is very successful in what it's trying to do, and that what it's trying to do is kind of going like they spent so long looking for this yeah. that everyone else had kind of given up on it. Yeah, I just and, fit, uh, I, yeah. But I also do think that it is this kind of very interesting thing where like the entire movie can be summed up as one woman thinks she's right and then she is. <laughs> yeah, girls, <laughs> peace then out. Yeah, I I feel in some ways he's kind of at the altar of, well, this is what happened, so it had to happen, kind of thing. Like, we have to include that, it happened. And although I'm sure some of this is just complete fiction, but it feels like that a bit, where they they are being overly meticulous, and, yeah. (laughs) Largely from, like, the torture scene, which, like, while it makes me uncomfortable, is, like, engaging from sort of there until, I don't know, somewhere in the next hour or so. <laughs> I, I, do, I, do, I do think it is, this is the core of my debate in terms of like why certain things play better in cinemas, is that like, yeah. not, not to say that you weren't like focusing on the movie, but there is something about being sat in a dark room where the only thing you can focus on yeah, is I, this, and you do kind of get more emotionally enveloped in the act of creating tension I, in some I, ways. I did have to keep kind of rewinding about 10 seconds to be like, wait, what What just happened? How do we end the up movie, here? The, mo- the first, <laughs> like, half an hour hour of this movie is very much like, I don't... There's so many names being thrown <laughs> Yeah. And, yeah. like, I, I, luckily I had seen it before, and so I'm just kind of, like, you just kind of go along with it, and it is one of those movies where, like, if you do eventually figure out who everyone's talking yeah. about. Right, look, it probably look. it probably is our like white Western brains where it's like, oh god, the foreign names are so many. Of them I can't so handle similar. non-white faces. Who is everyone? Look, hand in the air. I am the dumb half of this podcast. I am not great at picking up on what's going on unless it's super fucking straightforward. But yeah, this is a podcast about how I'm not good at watching movies for the first time. <laughs> <laughs> 
we get another fantastic cameo from someone right now. Like, there are multiple scenes in this movie, but Mark Strong shows up just to kind of shout at people. <laughs> yeah, he super does. He super does just turn up, yell, and I was like, what if that's it for him? And there are people who basically that is what they do, but he does get a few more scenes, yeah. Um, Meyer also, you know, after finding the one-two punch of the bombing and um, finding out that this Abu Ahmed is allegedly dead, uh, she's just like, and she makes a big vow to kill Bin Laden. I'm going to kill Bin Laden. It's like, whoa, okay. But yeah, then Mark Strong starts yelling. Yeah, and then the biggest deus ex machina of this entire movie is like an intern or something walks into the room and goes like, we just found this file that's got the information that you need to like crack this. <laughs> Someone fucked up, whack whacka. <laughs> and again, it works because it is based on this idea of like bureaucracy is terrible and they don't, obviously the movie is saying this, it's like, look how fucking terrible this is, like... They go on this big rant about like how there was so much chatter after 9-11, everyone trying to like submit stuff and just you don't pay attention to all of it. Yeah. Oh, I, I 100 this is like the most believable thing in the movie for me. <laughs> <laughs> but it is but it is that thing where like the movie just presents it very much straight faced. It's not like Maya turns to the screen and goes, Oh god, fucking bureaucrats or something. <laughs> She doesn't do a uh, Alec Baldwin and Departed and start slapping around a tech guy or anything. <laughs> no, and and it's this piece of information that leads them to figure out that the person who they've been chasing, uh, Abu Ahmed, thinking that he's dead, might have a brother who looks just like him who died after they grew beards. And <laughs> Yeah, this is the part where, like, there are definitely parts where they are flirting with being incredibly racist, but they <laughs> just about thread that needle and... I mean, it's made more complicated by the fact that they try and address it, like they they try and talk about like family name and 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 stuff like that, and how other parts of the world don't have the same naming conventions we have. Individuals can have multiple different names. He is also potentially using a pseudonym. There's a lot going on there. But the person, the courier, you know, the person that she thought of as Abu Ahmed uh, might be alive after all, and they they might have misreported his death. Is is the point of of that section? Yeah, and I mean, I, I, it's important to say that Homeland is on at the same time as this movie coming out, hmm. which is like I feel like we are just at the tail end of kind of Hollywood and TV's obsession with Muslim and Islam as like this great terrible threat. Like I'm, it still exists, <laughs> but it, it but it definitely feels like. The, we're at this stage where 24 was this great big shining beacon of like American pop culture after 9 11. <sighs> yeah. <laughs> uh, and like you've got the torture happy main character. And this does kind of feel like the eventual combination. Like right down to the fact that even Homeland is kind of, in some ways, it's a rebuttal, but then because it's from the same people as 24, it still falls into the same kind of like. It's the thinking man's 24. <laughs> it's the, yeah, it's the thinking man's 24, except like it still falls into various like racial problems yes. of that show. I like, there's this weird thing where I think this movie's kind of more factual approach benefits it because yeah, like there, there aren't any stereotypes. No, there's a scene where, like, Mark Duplass is talking over, like, aerial footage of, of the house, and he said, and she's like, how do you know that's a woman? And he says, well, the men don't touch the clothes. And it's like, it isn't him making a general, broad, sweeping statement about women in the whole world it is a factual statement about the way things work in this part of the world. And, like, I think they handle that one 
just well enough. Uh, where yeah. it's like it scans as sexist, but it's sort of like, but nuance, <laughs> and and like it would be impossible to do the job they do without making some big assumptions. <laughs> yeah, and it's from here that like Maya reaches out to Dan, who is now kind of like a higher up officer at the CIA headquarters. Yeah, good and for kind him. of Yeah, it, <laughs> like he disappears from the movie after the the multitude of torture scenes. And his role for kind of Act Two is just to kind of hang out in the rooms of the CIA people. Mm. I will say, kind of cool, uh, but jarring to see a practicing Muslim as a higher up in the CIA. Uh, this character of the Wolf. Yeah, uh, Frederick Lane, most famous again for Lost and Supernatural. Like he shows up on those shows for a couple episodes. Mm. But yeah, it, it, it does feel like this is a rug that. Homeland does as well, which is like we're going to have a character be a practicing Muslim to kind of yeah. try and thread that needle of like it's not just for terrorists. I mean, obviously on Homeland it turns out that <laughs> <laughs> the practicing Muslim white character they have is a terrorist. Oh, but... good, <laughs> good, solid. But yes, the the Muslim the, the Islam faith is not just terrorists from the Middle East, like, there are white Muslims, there are black Muslims, there are Muslims all over the goddamn world. Yeah, and, and the wolf is partially based, again, a lot of these people are partially based on things that Mark Bowles heard, there is a higher up in the CIA who is a practicing Muslim, and yeah, and the movie now kind of, like, changed text to a more traditional spy thriller. Like, we are done with the torture, <sighs> and now that they've found out that this brother still exists, we shift over to introducing, like, Egg Ramirez and Faraz Faraz, uh, as this like spy team, just just walking around the city, just trying to just trying to spot people. Yeah, I found this part a tiny bit confusing. Like they're like, yeah, we cloned, like, so Dan borrows like four hundred grand to buy a man of a uh, what is that like a Murcielago, a Lamborghini. He goes to Kuwait, yeah. gives Kuwaiti prince a lo- a Lamborghini to clone the phone. Or just get them the phone number of this dude's mother, and then Harold Perrineau's character clones that number, so every time that phone rings, their phone rings. And then it just gets a little bit hazy as you just see, as you said, this duo kind of just walking around the city a lot, and eventually they're like, wait, is that him? And they they get their picture confirmation and everything. But I I really like this section of the movie. I I know... Uh, it, it, it's the, like from here onwards I'm like more on board with it I, it, it's the sort of between this and the torture scene at the beginning where I'm kind of like what was the point of a lot of this but yeah when it does get a little bit more like when there is that impetus that driving force of like right this, here's something achievable um, that's when I'm far more on board yeah and it, it like I this scene is kind of all about like they know that this person is someone because they're very good at tradecraft which basically means that like they are aware they need to keep on moving they need to go to different locations if they're going to make phone calls yeah they they, can... ma- they make phone calls from like 12 different locations in a short space of time it's like well that seems like something that a professional would do yeah this is <laughs> this is not someone who is like uneducated or untrained this is someone who is like making very conscious decisions to do what they're doing mm-hmm. and yeah this whole sequence is fun like you get the tension of them being in the car and them losing a yeah, signal. Yeah, not subtle, are they? Like, just this big <laughs> fucking camera pointed right at him. But, well, that's, well, that's yeah. the thing, is, like, it, like, the movie makes a point, there is the scene where when they're first kind of, like, heading out, they've got a bunch of white Americans 
Yeah. And this guy Hakeem in the car, and immediately some guys on motorcycles come up and like pull guns on them. <laughs> And it's just like, we don't want Americans here. Like, yeah. you have come to a place where Americans are not welcome. And, like, yeah. they're ready for shit to kick off. But they're just trying to go, like, we're just, be calm, be patient. Yeah. We'll, we'll leave. And it is this kind of, like, overriding tension that the movie starts to try and build. Like, so you get kind of multiple scenes that are designed to show you how dangerous it is being white in these countries, in this atmosphere. Like, yeah. you've got the scene here, you've got the scene of... Carl Chandler being kicked out of Pakistan, and it all culminates in Maya almost getting killed in a car. Yes, <laughs> and also like the subtle line of like, "Don't eat out after the Marriott got bombed." You know, yeah. like just those little like the way the 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 climate is changing for them over time. I appreciate that. Yeah, like they've been there so long mm. that it's like no longer is it a like non-hostile occupation it's kind of like you are the symbols of everything that is going wrong at the moment with this kind of prolonged Mm -hmm. occupation and again again the movie doesn't really like outwardly say negative things wow and but but being focused on the white characters it does kind of like (laughs) yeah it's it's kind of hard to get the point of view of what it's actually like to be someone living in pakistan yeah it's this atmosphere yeah and I like the little touch of, like, Joseph's replacement is sort of like, oh, yeah, I'm just going to do what you say because Joseph recommended that. And it's like, briefly, she's getting her way and then immediately she becomes this, like, public target just like Joseph did. And it's like, now you have to leave. <laughs> yeah, you, you you do get that brilliant scene, though, where, like, just before this, where she just shouts Joe down the hallway before he goes into the meeting, like, just completely <laughs> chews his ass out. And then he has to, like, skulk into this meeting with various people. Carl Chandler's good in this. Carl Chandler's good in literally everything. Uh, even but... even that less good Godzilla movie, he's probably <laughs> the best thing in it, so... <laughs> uh, but yeah, you get this, the cut, the eventually find out that um, Abu Ahmed is driving a white SUV, <laughs> which is not usual for Pakistan. Yeah, don't they say, like, if he were driving a... A, a sedan. Yeah, we'd be fucked. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so they find out he's driving a white SUV, and you get this like again, the scenes of them being spies, and like, again, this is like real world spying. This isn't like what we covered on Secret Agent. <laughs> How this is very much... dare you? <laughs> <laughs> but it's like the entire point of this scene is like they just hire a bunch of locals to sit by the side of the road at like various <laughs> intervals with a pen and paper and write down when and where they saw this white SUV. Yeah, 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 yeah. So that eventually they can track it to a compound yep. in Abbottabad, Pakistan, yep. which is near the Pakistani military academy, which... when they're just like, well, fuck, how are we... Strategically <laughs> placed. <laughs> yeah, yeah, how are we going to hmm. like find out who lives in this place? And then we kind of we move into like almost like Act 2.5. Yes, we're, we're off to Washington for just my favourite part of the whole of the movie like from here on you know you've got mark duplass um which is a huge get and then i guess you've got some guy called james gandolfini um <laughs> as well <laughs> yeah oh, james gandolfini is so good in yeah. this like there's a there's apparently a story of james gandolfini like wanting to apologize to leon panetta who's the cia director that he's betraying mm-hmm. to the point where after the movie came out and apparently leon panetta saw the movie 
he he reached out to, to James Gandolfini through Mark Boll and was like, can you give me James Gandolfini's number because I really want to give him a phone call? And Gandolfini's mm-hmm. response to this was like, he's the director of the CIA, how the fuck doesn't he have my phone number? Well, I, I would imagine he's being polite. <laughs> <laughs> uh, how did that phone call go? <laughs> I no idea. I just, like, the, the only anecdote I've seen is that first half. But yeah, James Gandolfini uh, about, like, is in this movie about six months before he dies. Mm. Um, just a, a towering star of American television in the 2000s. Just someone who is so good in almost everything. And I'm so happy that we get to cover something with him in. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Uh, I, I mean, you. I'm sure you probably haven't seen a lot of Gandolfini <laughs> because, like, the the thing that is he, he is famous for is the Sopranos. Is the Sopranos, which again is like one of the five greatest TV shows of all time. Okay, look, I yeah, obviously, I have not seen his finest work, but I have enjoyed him in everything I've ever seen him in. So yeah, yeah I, I, the thing is, he's he's just innately charismatic and warm even while he's kind of being a little bit prickly i like that like he's got this aura of being so scary but if you actually like the things that actually come out of his mouth not actually that much of a prick it's just kind of like mark duplass insisting that maya sit at the end of the room not at one of the tables and that kind of stuff and like she shoots him straight she says stuff like i'm the motherfucker who found the house yeah apparently leon panetta is like a well-known like swearaholic and it's kind of like a real life reference to like his smirk after she calls herself the motherfucker Mm -hmm. is like the idea that he swears a lot and uh but yeah like he's just good and his again his merry band of people who just show up in the cia room yeah (laughs) like john fucking barabin's there and (laughs) that one really blew me away i was like what the fuck are you doing here like so this is John Barrowman. Like obviously he's he's moved over to America at this point. He's done being star of Torchwood, really. Yeah. Uh, Arrow is on the horizon. Arrow is on the horizon. He's done with all the UK like Saturday night dinner time TV mm-hmm. that he was doing in like the, God. the late two thousands. America, you missed out on the best <laughs> of John Barrowman, quite frankly. John Barrowman as like the most openly homosexual man on British television, apart from every other openly homosexual man on British television. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, but then, like, doing kiss scene after kiss scene with women auditioning for musicals that he's helping them be in. It's just like, well, sure. <laughs> yeah, and then he moves to America, does that bad season of Torchwood, and, and ends up recurring on Arrow for God knows how long. I don't know. It's too long. This is, like, the only American movie that he's in. Mm. Because, like, the next time he's in a proper movie is Feynman Sam's set for action. (laughs) Sorry, I was not prepared for that sentence. Uh, Flex Dexter. Flex Dexter. Yeah, there we go. Uh, But yeah, again, it's just, the movie just keeps on supplying you with more and more people. You're just like, why are you here? And obviously you get it like this like, triple scene of, like, Mark Duplass, James Gandolfini, John Barrowman. James Gandolfini obviously has the with credit in this movie because he is James Gandolfini, and mm. he gets the with credit if he wants it. Mark Strong makes his triumphant return. He does. As, like, kind of Maya's direct boss in a great recurring segment where Maya just repeatedly walks up to his glass office and writes a number on his window <laughs> every morning. Yeah, the number of days and 
that we but, have been aware that this compound well, that, exists. Yeah, they're monitoring nothing. it and they're not doing anything. And Stannis rocks up to provide some opposition. His wandering accent persists. Yeah, yeah and, and and like this, I think these scenes are the ones that people. I, I, they said there were like three big scenes that were factually inaccurate about the movie, but the use of enhanced interrogation is one mm. uh, that they find dismissive. Uh, the understatement of the role of the Obama administration, which obviously is represented here mm. by Stephen Delane, and then finally, like the idea that it was just one woman pushing against the CIA system and succeeding <laughs> yeah. in finding out somebody loved. And like all three of those feel like they're kind of very company line. Yeah. We did not do torture. The Obama administration definitely didn't hold it up, even though every single complaint <laughs> that the Obama administration has in this is kind of, like, logical. Yeah, in fairness, the lines about, like, I was in the room with your old boss who pitched WMDs in Iraq and stuff like that, I'm like, eh, fair. <laughs> yeah, and, but then it's just this weird thing where it's like, I don't understand what they're trying to say because every single complaint about this feels logical. Like we know that like drone bombings happened under the Obama administration's watch. One or two. Like they are not they are not a clean administration no. by any stretch. And it just feels weird to try and paint them as being like No, 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 they were completely happy with everything that was going on with like Obama the killed more people than bin Laden. <laughs> but never mind. <laughs> um yeah, they're sort of tasked with proving it's not not Bin Laden in some ways in the house. Because they, they make this point of whoever is in here, we're sure they're high value. They walk around, they stand undercover, they, a courier leaves the house and comes back. Like, yeah, all this sort of stuff. So they, they, but they might be a drug dealer. Yeah, but like, if they're a drug dealer, they're the worst drug dealer in the world because they don't <laughs> sell any fucking drugs. And from here, like they eventually do give the sign off. You get this great scene with mm. with Stephen Delane and Mark Strong, where Stephen Delane just kind of turns around and goes like, "If if we were going to do this," <laughs> in that great kind of like double politics talk, where it was just like, "I'm not saying we're going to do this, but the fact that we're having this conversation says that we're probably going to be doing this." Maybe you should start getting ready for an operation we haven't signed off on. <laughs> maybe you should just be hanging out at the camp, and then maybe we'll give the order that night. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And again, you get the great... James Gandolfini won't sign off on anything until mm. they sit around and have this, like, how certain are you? And everyone else in the room is like, oh, no, I'm terrified. And they're giving, like, 60%, 80%. And, uh, then Maya, <laughs> and then Maya just kind of, like, busts in like a wrecking ball. And is just like, 100%. I know certainty scares the fuck out of you, but 100%. Yeah. But if you, need me to, if you need to be comfortable, I'll give you 95%. <laughs> she can't have possibly been 100%. 100% certain, though. <laughs> like, that's that's the part, like, that she wants this so badly that she's almost an unreliable source of information. I, I think but... it's a very fucking different movie if they don't find her some Bin Laden. If you are making this movie and it's about a failed attack on a compound mm. to find someone who they think is a some Bin Laden, it's a completely different movie. If, if it's just like that scene in the Hurt Locker where Reno goes and just murders some random, or, or tries to murder some random. Yeah. <laughs> oh, brutal. Uh, I do like that Dan kind of stabs him in the back. First. Yeah, a little bit. He says a soft 60, doesn't he? Yeah. yeah. Like, but because he's been here in the bureaucracy for a couple of years at this point, even though like they're supposed to be friends, but is this kind of like almost covering his own ass? kind of thing. Uh, but yeah, the movie hard cuts to Area 51, and we are introduced to... Uh, I, I, I 
the the speed that they gloss over being Area Fifty One <laughs> blew me away. Like I'm not saying there are aliens in Area Fifty One, but to just be so blasé about and now in Area Fifty One, a very normal military base with stealth helicopters, <laughs> stealth helicopters that you cannot hear from the ground. Kind of. <laughs> but yeah, we're introduced to basically the main cast of the rest of the movie. Yeah, the, the the other movie, the movie I would have liked to have seen, where you learn about these operatives and this unit and stuff. Because uh, yeah, it's so... just, here's Chris Pratt and Frank Grillo and Mike Coulter and Joel Edgerton and Joel Edgerton's little brother and many people. It's it's wild and this movie like, obviously like we are two hours into the movie at this point when this operation happens like they pretty much tw- like the real operation takes i think about 27 minutes in real life they yeah. take 25 minutes of the movie to do oh, nice. the operation in functionally real time yeah. which is and like i well, said to you like is chris pratt not in this movie loads <laughs> like in my my mental image of it was it was Chastain and Pratt in the dirt for two hours. <laughs> and then it's like, nope, here he is, 45 minutes from the end, and he's going to get all of the buzz coming out of it that isn't Chastain's. Yeah, I mean, there are the brief window we get into them, they're a fun, charismatic little bunch. Yeah, I do like that Pratt is listening to, like, financial podcasts because he's got, like, <laughs> ideas. I've got plans after for after the war, guys. Yeah, maybe, possibly, a good thing we don't spend too much time with them because... Let's not get into the U.S. military. No, I mean, like, like they're relatively level-headed. Like, you get that throwaway line of Chris Pratt talking to Maya and kind of going, like, we've been on this operation before. We've been told we are going after Osama bin Laden and it's been a big bust. That, like, that, that's, that's heavy shit, like, to think that that is the kind of thing that can happen. And, like, even when they kill him, that it takes so many double and triple confirmations to think, oh, we did it. That was, like, a heavy thing. Because, like, in your head, it's like, well, he's, like, the most recognisable person in the world for people in the military. But even they need to be triple sure and everything. Mm. But, yeah, the idea of, like, just cowboying up and it's not him, like, that's crazy. Yeah, Yeah, and and now the movie just kind of, like, settles into this... The Canaries. Yeah, it's... (laughs) I don't... Like, this is, like, why you get Catherine Bigelow to do things and it's a shame she doesn't direct as much. But, like, she is just a full-on force mm. in this. Like, no one does this kind of thing better than she does. Yeah. You get Chastain's brief scene of looking cool as hell in her, sh- in her shades. Uh, the, the, the shot that was used for all of the promotional stuff that probably led me to believe it was a Chastain and Pratt, like, marathon. Uh, but then she just takes, like, a backseat, and we just, yeah, this little, uh, what are they called, Dev Grew unit uh yeah still still team six mm, yeah basically yeah and it's just it's night vision it's it's radio chatter it's like frantic and chaotic and like fuck did i get him yeah i think i got him and like you know oh it's him he's down and double and triple tapping bodies and stuff like that yeah and um, like the, the like the fact that like the one of the first things that happened and it's again the movie doing the realism thing where we're going to show you everything that happened including the fact that one of the fucking helicopters goes down yeah within like five minutes of them arriving at the compound yeah they kind of look super stupid at points (laughs) i'm not saying like i am sure throughout the history of military conflict has to be full of accidents that make them look very silly but 
Uh, yeah, they do look kind of silly here. Yeah, crashing one of two highly experimental stealth helicopters that are being designed in Area 51 mm. on, like, its debut mission is yeah. is kind of insane. Like, But then there's also the fact that apparently they built, like, the compound. Like, we see the model of the compound in so many shots of them in the CIA discussing it and how, like, it's impossible to do a drone bombing on it because of various complications. And in the in the real life, they built a scale model of it and then had SEAL Team 6 run repeated drills to get used to what they had to do mm. and then the fact that the mission is I wouldn't say sloppy but so many things go wrong like mm-hmm. multiple explosives don't go off and we can't get through this door and, yeah, yeah this door's too thick we have to go through another entrance and I, I let, I'm not saying the review would be better if like it was all about the kind of drills that they were running on this but I do think there's an interesting extended version of this that is all about like the way them reacting to things that we have been trained as an audience to understand are like the Mission Impossible thing where you see the yeah. hypothetical run through going perfectly and then it all fucks up in reality. Yeah, yeah, and um, it's not like it fucks up because uh, like, I mean, yeah, <laughs> you get this like there's no score or anything in the background of this. You mm-hmm. just kind of get this incredibly tense, like you know where it's going to end, but you are literally watching almost like documentary footage of. Of this yeah, thing happening. it really did start feeling like it. Yeah, big big shout out to Greg Fraser, who is the um, DP on this. It, it, the movie looks great, and the, the fact that the movie is able to swap between kind of like night vision goggles and not night vision goggles so seamlessly, and like just the way that everything's shot, that you understand the geography of everything as well, is and the, impressive. Yeah, it's but it is like watching a completely different movie, like if you hard cut from some of this where they're swapping between night vision and and not night vision and earlier scenes where they're just sort of like interrogating people or doing surveillance or whatever it's like what are these two different movies (laughs) i gotta say that helicopter is not that fucking quiet and they are not that quiet (laughs) breaching this compound and they're (laughs) super fucking lucky there's not a secret exit because you know they're shouting and they crashed a helicopter, and they are blowing doors, and yet somehow uh, they end up getting their man who doesn't run away. But I mean, I guess they covered all the exits, and he couldn't. But yeah, I was just sort of like, oh, I really expected this to be way stealthier than they've made it. But I guess this is yeah. the grim reality of stealth warfare: is it isn't actually that fucking stealthy. <laughs> no, like they're using explosive to blow doors, as I said. The fact yeah. that they wake up the entire fucking town around them and they yeah. all come and are, like something to go. Uh, and you're waiting for that scene where they have to shoot a civilian to like out of panic or whatever, but it never actually comes. Yeah. yeah, and they're like telling the people to like back away, back away. You don't know what's going on here. Then they have to blow up the fucking helicopter when they leave. Yeah. Uh, apparently they had a bunch of black hawks kind of like waiting on the sidelines to pick up the people who wouldn't have fit in the first copter because obviously like, it took two helicopters to bring everyone there Those, there were other helicopters waiting at standby to pick up right. everyone else otherwise there would have been people left behind yeah. and <laughs> um, probably even more of an international incident than it was yes <laughs> but again like i think that's the most fascinating thing is like obviously they're doing this thing where they're trying to avoid intervention from the pakistani military the pakistani military have come out afterwards and said that osama bin laden was under house arrest and they knew where he was the entire time right of course which, and that's why there's all those other people there <laughs> guarding which, him <laughs> yeah which is just this like weird thing where it's like i i really want to know what the international blowback from this was mm. i feel like i there probably is sources on this, but the fact the movie just kind of hard cuts after this is like mission successful, 
Grab Jessica, all the hard drives. <laughs> grab all the hard drives. Jessica Chastain gets to like look at the body and feel empty inside because she's achieved her life goal. Yeah. And then there's like no, you don't even get any text at the end of the movie. Like normally, like you're kind yeah, of like trained sort of these kind of things. For that. Yeah. <laughs> but even then, you have to remember that this movie comes out in December of 2012, mm. and the like uh, the death of Osama bin Laden was May 2011. So what has happened in the world that they could conveniently like summarize in a convenient way really yeah i mean it is upsetting they didn't just include that very factual scene from the newsroom uh where i want you to know that we got bin laden for you tonight sir this is our third episode <laughs> on <laughs> on aaron silk in this mini series yeah 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 i love that the rock like broke this news <laughs> Because his cousin's a seal or some shit. Um, I wonder. Which, I wonder which one it was. <sighs> yes, he has many. Yeah. But yeah, like they get all the the hard drives. Obviously, there's been a lot of fucking wild information derived from those hard drives in years since. Mm. Like the video games that Osama bin Laden had on his hard drives, presumably for the kids, but still just wild that there are like <laughs> stolen video games on a hard drive. Yeah, <laughs> guys, grab the bootleg porn. Let's go. <laughs> yeah. And, like, yeah, seeing Maya, like, wander like a zombie through them as they're sort of, like, jubilantly labelling everything up with Sharpies and then, like, you know, giving the confirmation and then just wandering off. And then, yeah, that crazy fucking scene at the end where she is the only person on this plane and he's like, you must be real important, you're the only one on the manifest, sit where you like. And, yeah, like, the idea that there's no one around her, she doesn't know where to go next... And, like, there is that scene with Gandolfini in the canteen where, like, he asks her what else she's done for them. And she says, nothing. This is all yeah. I've done. And, it's and like, that kind of sets oof. up this. <laughs> yeah. Like, this is this is her life goal. And, like, like even, even in 2011, when, like, I don't know where you were when you got this, but I remember being in, like, the university canteen and then someone was just like, Osama Bin Laden's dead. And... Even as a British person, like you understand, like the kind of import that that has, but it uh, also feels like it's it's ten years after the thing that happened, and he's not really the main focus of anything. Uh, well, I will tell you where I was when this was announced because we mentioned The Rock. A wrestling <laughs> event ended with John Cena announcing to a live audience. Osama Bin Laden has been compromised to a permanent end because they don't like saying died or anything like that or executed. So pro wrestling broke that news before a lot of actual news stations did because obviously The Rock told them. So that's where I was when I learned that. I've always loved that phrase, compromised to a permanent end. Uh, enhanced interrogation, this is all good PR spin. Yeah, it's, it's a wild one because I expected this to be... You know, I flippantly called it the 9-11 revenge movie, the, like, let's go kill Bin Laden movie, but it really takes the... There's no sense of joy here that this has been achieved. Like, No, I think I think that's the important yeah. thing, is, like, the, the movie isn't, like, we were let's celebrate. They even cut away from, like, the seal celebrating the victory, and mm. it's all on Jessica Chastain, who, again, like, she is so good in this. And I know you couldn't latch onto her personality, but I think as an acting performance, this is oh, yeah. absolutely yeah. terrific. Yeah, no criticism of her performance whatsoever. She's fucking great. Um, she's, you know, she's one of the best actors alive right now. And this was her big coming out party and everything. But yeah, 
I would also say that, like, you know, not being able to latch onto her as a character and then having her just fade into the background while they conduct this operation potentially detracts a little bit, but then she, in her performance of this final scene and the scene before where she's identifying the body and everything, she crushes it. Like, she mm. brings it all back and everything. And like, like I said, if this is a movie that is, like, a two-hander between Maya and this little unit... Maybe I like it a lot more. I don't know. But then, as I said, you do get into dangerous territory where these soldiers start expressing some very controversial things. And it maybe gets a bit too Hollywood and stuff like that. But I don't know. It's just I never quite got over that kind of revolving door of people aspect. And I don't know. Maybe there just isn't an exciting way to tell this story. Yeah, I I think... Either this is a far drier movie if they go full on like realism, like this is exactly what happened, or you have to kind of like completely make up large swathes of it and make it more Hollywood, mm. as you say. If you if you want to make it more palatable, I don't think the movie's trying to be palatable. It's kind of, in my mind, the kind of perfect middle ground between the two of them. Even if I do slightly prefer what the Hurt Locker is going for, mm-hmm. in terms of like just being able to do what it needs to do and that's even without the kind of the weirdly misplaced like happy-go-lucky let's go murder someone plot in the middle of that movie <laughs> let's cowboy up I'm not saying that dumb Chris Hemsworth horse soldier movie is objectively better no I'm not saying any of that <laughs> I just remembered that movie existed while we were talking about this and it made me laugh <laughs> yeah that's Zero Dark Thirty yes. we've just covered yeah uh, I don't think I've got any more war movies hidden up my sleeve for you yeah, if you could just do me a solid of not pulling any out of nowhere from now on, that would be great. I'm glad I've finally seen it, and on a technical level, I respect the hell out of it. Like, Catherine Bigelow is a beast of a director, some great acting performances, I just, yeah. It, it never enmeshed for you. Yeah, it, never... it was a bit floaty for me, and as That's... I said, that revolving door of people just That's sort fair. of really fucked me up a bit, but, you yeah, know, but... and again, if... I really loved that last 45 minutes to an hour, and I'm like, okay, here we go. It, it's a really good last 45 minutes to an hour. Like, it's the kind of thing that I will just pull up and watch, yeah. just as a technical showcase. Yeah, and I'm not saying bad, I'm just saying not for me. Like, yeah. something just didn't quite dig into me in the way it has for you, but yeah. But speaking of movies that we both love, mm. we are covering one of both of our favourite movies of the decade. In fact, one of the things that was, like, the surest lock of anything. Possibly the first movie to go on the list of the entire podcast concept. Like, the second we started pitching this, it was like, fuck, we're going to get to talk about Short Time 12. Yeah. (laughs) Which is, like, one of those movies where this is our only 2013 movie, and that's not to say there aren't other 2013 movies that we love, it's just this was kind of... This is a movie that both of us love, and it's also a movie that's kind of very lost in the shuffle. Yes. For sure. Like, like, not enough people have seen Short Term 12, quite yeah. frankly. I, I paid a stupid amount of money to see this movie, but that is for, <laughs> for next time. Uh, but yeah, this is a, a lovely movie, and again, another movie much like Zero Dark Thirty, where you just kind of sat there kind of like, fuck, this is just a TV-stacked cast. Yes, and everyone's homework between now and next week is to seek out the, uh, the redone front cover that heavily features Rami Malek. <laughs> and just... Two Oscar winners in this movie. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. Uh, yeah, go find that. It's fucking wild. Maybe Ben will tweet it at some point in the next week or so. Good luck remembering when that is in real time, Ben. Um, uh, so I, I get to end the podcast this time. So, Matthew. Yes. Will there be war movies? Uh, there will not be war movies. Although, maybe there will. And we'll have to do some enhanced interrogation of me, I guess, to find out if there will be more movies. And then there will be, but then the movie is dead. But maybe it was the movie's brother. And this wasn't good. Bye, everyone. Bye. I did it for so long.